Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. The state is the altar of political freedom and, like the religious altar, it is maintained for the purpose of human sacrifice. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith about the state. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself Yeah, sure. So I'm a senior lecturer in political philosophy at the University of Melbourne. I'm interested in ethics and political philosophy and social ontology, which is study of um, social groups and the social world. I've worked on a bunch of different topics. So earlier on, I worked on questions about what it means for some political project or goal to be feasible. I worked a bit on ideas about ideal and non-ideal theory and which kind of theory we should be trying to do and what it means to do a non-ideal theory well. And and, uh, more recently, I've been working a lot on questions about collective agency, so social groups, social movements, what it takes to be a collective agent, which we'll talk a lot more about, I think, in this podcast. And thinking a bit too about climate ethics, global labour injustice, and much more recently I've turned to working on questions about sex and gender. And in terms of background, I did my undergrad honours and masters in New Zealand at the University of Otago. Then I went to Canberra to study at the Australian National University. I did my PhD there and then a couple of postdocs until about 2012. And I got my first permanent job at the University of Sheffield in the UK in 2012. So I moved over there, had a rainy, grey, <laughs> concretey few years, and then finally got the chance to move back to Melbourne in 2017. So I've been back in Melbourne since then and very happy. Oh, it's great that you're back here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, what was it that inspired you to write, Are Citizens Culpable for the Estate's Actions?, Yeah, so this is my new book that just came out. Uh, The project started with a Marie Curie grant um, when I'd first arrived in Sheffield. I had some big hopes for that project. (laughs) The, The sort of big goal was to end up writing a monograph about international cooperation. So I kind of wanted to think a lot about what states are 
as entities that interact with one another to pursue big global goals, like an end to climate change. And then it just turned out in trying to work on that, there were all these prior questions, which I think is always the case in philosophy. You have to answer this question before you can answer that question. So I went all the way back and started thinking about, you know, what the state actually is, and particularly trying to answer questions about whether citizens or the people are a part of that entity when the state performs a certain sort of action, like it sets immigration policy or it signs a treaty, who is implicated in that action? So who's culpable for state wrongdoing when the state does wrong? And then answering those questions just took so long um, that that ended up being the whole project. So that's what the book is. And and actually, you know, I have this one draft chapter that's talking about international cooperation, but I ended up cutting it out of the book. So I kind of never got to the grand finale of what the project was supposed to be about. All right. So to go back to basics, could you give a definition of what the state is? Yeah. So I guess we can start with this common sense conception of a state like Australia. And I guess, like I said already, we have this idea about certain actions that the state, in some colloquial sense, performs, right? So Australia can sign up to international treaties with another state, or Australia can set domestic law or policy. So it's responsible for our offshore detention centres, for example, which a lot of people think are are problematic. So we have this kind of colloquial understanding of what this thing, the state, is. And of course, it differs between different types of political setup. So there are democratic states, and there are are monarchies and there are dictatorships and these things are all states as well. I guess the question that I was interested in in the book was to really focus on democratic states in particular and then try to think about for those kinds of states exactly what is the agent that authors these actions that we think of as being the state's actions like signing treaties or going to war or setting domestic policy. What is a citizen-inclusive model of the state? Yeah, so this is a kind of technical term. So in the book, I set up two main ways of thinking about the state. So we have this kind of colloquial sense of the state, Australia. And then I tried to say, okay, let's take these two models and run through them. So we have a citizen-inclusive model, which counts the people, the citizenry as part of this entity, the state. And then we have a citizen exclusive model, which kind of casts all the citizens out and then only has some smaller group. So on the exclusive model, I was thinking about something like elected officials, public servants, people who are actually involved in the the bureaucracy of administering the state on a day-to-day basis. Whereas the The citizen-inclusive model is something like, has been more familiar from the history of political philosophy and and the works of people like Rousseau, for example. So this idea of like, we the people, the 23 million, or actually I think it's less, that's the population, so 16 million or so voting-aged Australians, we the people together self-governing through these um, democratic institutions. So that was the model that I thought was the thing to beat. That's the most popular model in the history of political philosophy. And I think that's quite intuitive if you just talk to anyone on the street about how they think about what Australia is or who's responsible for Australia's actions. They do tend to point to this citizen-inclusive model. They really think that 
individuals are part of the people and the people vote for their representatives and the representatives do wrong because of the people. Um, so I think that's the model to beat and in the book I try to beat it. <laughs> Could you explain about collective agency? Yeah, so there's a somewhat kind of abstract, I would guess, discussion in a part of philosophy called social ontology. And in this area of philosophy, we tend to think about entities in the social world that are not individuals. And so we talk about groups of various kinds. These can be small groups, like very typically in the discussion, it's like four people painting a house together or um, four people overfishing a very small stream or something like this. But the kinds of groups we're interested in go all the way up. So we also talk about churches, for example, or there's a larger discussion crossing over into business ethics as well about corporations and companies. And then there's a sort of uh, older in political philosophy and more emerging in social ontology discussion about things like states and even high level entities like the World Trade Organization, for example. So there's all these sorts of like interesting groups that seem to perform actions and function in the social world. And there's a question about how we should think about or understand what these groups are, what kind of organization is necessary to even count as an agent. So for example, as like a legal person, or as something that is the equivalent of an individual. So there's a big discussion about like what does it take for a group of a certain kind to have beliefs in the way that an individual has beliefs or to have desires in something like the way that an individual has desires to be able to can a group form an intention and act on its intentions and then be responsible or blameworthy or culpable for those actions. So basically anything you can think about in the individual case, there's a question about whether it applies to social groups and then what kinds of groups it applies to. And so I think an easy way to think about what collective agency is, is it tells us what the groups are that function more or less roughly like individuals in the social world, and not all groups do. So what do you think it takes for a group to be a collective agent? Yeah, so um, there's a bunch of different theories put forward in the literature, so we're all sort of fighting amongst ourselves about which is the most persuasive one. And the one that I put forward in the book kind of goes something like this. So I think it has four conditions, if I remember properly. The first is that I think the group has to be able to be referred to as singular rather than plural. So when we talk about something like BP being responsible for the oil spill or the Catholic Church being responsible for covering up historical crimes, we're referring to this kind of single entity, BP, the Catholic Church, rather than referring to a group of people. So we would use a singular pronoun rather than a, rather than a plural. I think that these groups have to persist over time. So there's some kind of weird discussion about what about a case where there's like a protest, for example, and there's a bunch of people standing around and then they just sort of spontaneously join in. But only in this one case, then the group disbands and they all go their separate ways. Should we think that that kind of group that only maybe exists for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, that group of individuals could count as a collective agent? And I think no, I think the protest would count as maybe a joint action as something that they did together. And maybe the individuals could have responsibility for chipping in if that protest was wrongful in some way. But I don't think that they would together count as members of a collective agent where that agent could be held responsible or could be thought of as the sole author of an action. So there has to be some persistence over time. Members kind of 
you know, intentionally members and they perform a, a sequence of actions over time. And then the third condition is something about having a, a decision-making procedure in place that allows members to form group goals and plans for achieving those goals. And then final condition is that, which there's always this question about, okay, so you have a social group, but then who who are supposed to be the members of that social group? And I think that membership is going to be determined by people intending to take those group goals and plans to achieve the goals into account in their own decision making. So that sounds a little strong. It doesn't have to be that that the group's goals and decision making trump in any sense. So an individual could find themselves in a sort of conflict of interest, like I've got some duties as being a good girlfriend and I've got some duties in virtue of this group that I'm a member of, and these kind of clash. Like, I'm meant to be at my a cappella singing group practice, and I'm meant to be, like, taking my girlfriend for a wonderful meal out somewhere. And I could think about those two things and trade them off and decide to, you know, that I prefer to be a good girlfriend. That's compatible with me still being a member of the group, so long as I've, like, factored my role or part in the group into account in the decisions that I make. So that's the the account that I'm defending in the book. It's a bit weaker than some of the best known accounts in the literature, but it's also a lot stronger than some that will kind of take a really ad hoc approach and say like almost any group of people anywhere can count as a, a collective agent, like so long as they do some stuff together. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial And I'm speaking with Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith about the state. How does the individual benefit from being a member of the state? Good. So I guess there's this kind of uh, double-edged sword thought here. So there's kind of benefits and there are burdens and then these can sort of be traded off. So the main way that individuals benefit is in terms of public goods. So there's just this huge range of what we generally label as public goods that come out of being a a member of a state together with others, all pay taxes. And then those taxes go in to provide this huge range of goods and some that are more or less invisible to us, right? So like the roads are sealed, (laughs) they don't have potholes, or we have hospitals or we have good schools with teachers in them. So there's just this huge range of goods that come from having a state that's able to extract taxes, centralise the provision of certain sorts of goods, and then provide them. And of course, that's compatible with like a large range of differences between different democratic states, as we actually see, like in the US, shitty healthcare system, I'm in the UK, pretty good one, right? So huge range of different ways that those benefits can go. But I think that's one advantage. And maybe an overlooked advantage is something like security as well. So states generally are able to provide well, democratic states or um, richer industrialised states, however you want to carve that up, generally are able to provide a pretty serious measure of security and peacefulness within the territory. They're able to defend their borders. They're able to chip into humanitarian wars and so on. And then the flip side of that, is, of course, is that you there are some burdens as well, like you have to pay your taxes and you have to accept certain sorts of restrictions to your freedom, depending on how the laws are. You may have to accept some restrictions to your speech for example or to how you can treat other people so it's this kind of balance hopefully most people think we get more out than we put in I guess not everyone thinks that though 
So because of that, do you think that citizens have more responsibility for the state's actions because of these benefits? Yeah, I, I, I do. So I guess there's a couple of there's a couple of different questions we can ask. So one question that I was really focused on for the first part of the book was like, who's culpable for the state's actions? And then I ended up arguing for this citizen exclusive model of the state. So when it comes to culpability, the citizens aren't actually involved at all. But that doesn't mean that citizens can't take responsibility. So they're not culpable, but there's a sort of forward-looking sense in which they're in a position to do quite a lot to influence what the state does going forward. Citizens, at least citizens who are enfranchised, can vote, and that has an influence. Or they can be politically active even when they can't vote. They can go to protests and they can write to MPs and they can be part of the online discussion. So I think that in all of these non-culpable ways to be responsible, benefiting is a is one way that gives you some pretty serious obligations. So in the sort of in the abstract way of thinking about it, I tend to rank like four main reasons for taking action or having these forward-looking obligations to do certain sorts of sorts of things. So I think being culpable is the strongest. Like if you if you punch someone in the face, like you're the most responsible for I don't know what, fixing it, paying for damage, helping somehow, you've got the the strongest obligations. And then I think benefiting comes next. So if you've been a beneficiary of a certain sort of injustice or in virtue of being a member of a group or in virtue of some other relation, then you have like the second most strong obligations to do something about the wrongdoing or the injustice. And then there's a sort of argument among philosophers about the order of whether it's benefiting or this next thing. But I think the next thing is association. So we can argue about whether that comes second or third. But having certain, like a special relationship with someone who's been a victim of injustice or being somehow connected in this relation type way to the wrongdoing can also give us reasons or obligations to take action. And then I think the weakest source of these reasons or obligations is just merely having the capacity to do something. So this is sort of often referred to just in thinking about large problems like global poverty or climate change, which where it might be harder to make the case that any given individual is actually culpable for those outcomes. But we can just say, yeah, but you can, right? Like you're rich, you've got some time, you're, you're totally able, so you should do something. So sorry, that's a long way to say, I think benefiting is pretty high up in the list of things that generate reasons to act. And probably in terms of thinking about state wrongdoing and culpability, given the way that I think about what the agent is, there's going to be a shortfall because this public service and elected officials group, even if they're culpable, they might not have the resources to really pay their culpability, right? Like if that's in terms of reparations to Indigenous people, that might be a lot more expensive than what they're able to actually provide. So then because there's a shortfall, we'll go looking elsewhere for who has obligations and we might end up looking next to the beneficiaries and then that's going to be the citizens of the state. I think you may have partly answered this, but are there ways that members of the state might come to have responsibility for the actions of the state? Yeah, so I think that is partly answered by the benefiting question. Of course, there's some interesting complications here because you might want to say that 
of all the people who benefit from being members of the state, some of those people are also victims of particular historical injustices or contemporary ongoing injustices, sort of doing badly out of state law or policy or discrimination. So, yeah, so there's some complications in the way to think about benefiting. And then there's the other kinds of sources of duties or obligations that I just mentioned. So standing in the right sorts of associative relationships to the victims, maybe even to the wrongdoers, but that's more complicated, or just having a capacity to do something. So, yeah, I think there's like crafty ways that we can end up arguing that every citizen or even every person in the state like should be doing lots to make sure that state policy is not unjust and to be making sure that we're like making up for our historical wrongdoing. It's just I've been trying to sort of keep the culpability question separate from those other slightly weaker forms of responsibility. Could you explain about government culpability? Yeah, so I guess the first step is telling the story that we've been talking about already about what the right agent is. So like who is the author of this wrongdoing when Australia implements this terrible offshore processing policy and that really hurts refugees and asylum seekers? Who did that, right? So that's the sort of question we've been talking about already, about what is the collective agent and who's part of it. But then there's like these other interesting questions that come after that. So even if I in the book, managed to persuade my, my one reader or <laughs> my mum's read it. So if I've managed to persuade my mum that it's this elected officials and public servants group that's culpable, there's this question like what comes next? So how do we deal with government, state, culpability? And then I think there's just all these other interesting questions. So what's the right distribution of responsibility or blame punishment liability that follows from responsibility when it's when it's culpable to the members so i think it's kind of intuitive that if the group is small and egalitarian so it's like a i don't know like a robbery and everyone plays an equal part that probably when the group is culpable say they get a big fine $20,000 fine they just kind of split it equally that matches their contributions and their and their their membership in some sense but you're going to have to tell a much more complicated story if the group is huge like the state is if there's hierarchy in the group like there's bosses and there's executives and and then you're also going to have to tell a more complicated story if there's little social groups that count as agents nested within this bigger group that counts as the state so i think plausibly the state has like yeah, like, I forget the names of the departments now, but like the Department of Defence or, or what, however you call it. I forget, but I get confused between New Zealand and Australia, but maybe the Defence Department also counts as a collective agent in its own right. So then there's all these problems to deal with how exactly that all works out. So that's, yeah, once I finished the, the book, I have to sort of turn to start like dealing with that next slew of questions about what culpability actually means for members of the group. What is double counting responsibility? Yeah, so this, I don't know if, how generally interesting this will be. This is one of those things that in the project I kind of got tripped up on. So it's one of the last things that I talk about in the book. So I just mentioned when you get these really complicated types of groups, they're large, they have a lot of hierarchy between members, and they can have collective agents 
as members. So the state has these different departments or agencies, and maybe within those departments and agencies, they have smaller groups that really function themselves as collective agents. And then I just got myself really tripped up and worrying, like, now how many agents are there? <laughs> so it's like the individuals are agents, and then the, the subgroups are agents, and then the departments and, and agencies are agents, and then the state is an agent. And then, so there's this kind of counting worry, right? It's like, there's this wrongdoing. How many authors of the wrongdoing are there? And does that just end up giving you way more culpability than you would need to like actually answer the wrong, if that makes sense? So say the wrong was just like someone got hurt to the value of $100,000. And then you've just weirdly generated so much responsibility that you've got like a million dollars worth of of what's owed. I don't know. So I got really tangled up in this question of like how to do the counting um, and how to make it all work out. And I gave a talk in London last year and someone someone asked me, you know, responsibility, it's not like pizza. <laughs> it's not like you have this amount and then you have to like carve it up right. You know, like maybe there's, it's not like pizza. It's more like you just get as much as you need, right? So there's this kind of complicated, like how the hell are we supposed to exactly think about that? And in the book, I just ended up arguing that you, you, even if it looks like there's this huge proliferation of agents that are responsible, you can distribute culpability and maybe punishment itself all the way down to the individual. So even if you have a preferred way to do the distribution that's not equal, so say you think it's like proportional to seniority in the group or to the contribution that someone has made causally, you can give it to a sub-agent like a department, but you can also keep going distributing within that department all the way down to the individual. So I think, I hope everything works out fine in the end. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess there's one final thing. So in the the very last bit of the book, I take up this worry that I've sort of ended up defending a conclusion that's really unmotivating. So I think this can sometimes happen in philosophy, that your your goal is to figure out what's the, what the truth is, right? That's the project of philosophy. And then sometimes you get to a conclusion that's not very uplifting or appealing in the moral sense, like what we might have wanted at the start of a project on who's culpable for what the state does is like the people. Because <laughs> if it's the people, then they've got this really strong reason to take action. And that's a kind of uplifting conclusion in the sense that like, yeah, we've pinned responsibility on them. They've got all these reasons to like hit the streets and get motivated and take action. And yeah, so this is kind of worry that I've ended up defending a conclusion that like feels wrong in the sense of giving moral guidance to people about what they should do. And it, it's true that my conclusion is kind of like that. Like I think that's the best thing we can argue for if we want to, if we want the state to turn out to be a collective agent that can count as an author of its actions and be responsible for what it does, that excludes the citizenry. And I'm just kind of happy to, to bite that bullet and then to try to think in other ways about why citizens as individuals, nonetheless have reasons to care about what their state does and to try to be part of a solution. So all the discussion about them being beneficiaries or them just having a capability to act through political action, social movements and so on, I, I just have to hope that that's motivating enough um, without having won this conclusion of, of culpability. Yeah. So if you feel likely to be depressed by such a conclusion, you should just uh, not read the book. 
<laughs> no, I'm sure it's a really interesting read. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks so much for having me. And I've been speaking with Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith about the state. Hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.